So tonight our, our task is to look at the letter of 1 John. Among the last uh, of the inspired writings that come to us from the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John, if we accept the Apostle John as the author of, of these three letters, which many do, some may believe that John the Elder, as he identifies himself in 2nd and 3rd John, may be another John, another prominent leader named John in the early church. I don't have a problem accepting the Apostle John's authorship of the Gospel and these three letters and also the Apocalypse, uh, the, the Revelation that will shortly follow. But if this is the Apostle John, then he is probably the last living apostle of that original 12 from Jesus' multitude of disciples. He chose 12 whom he named apostles, those who would be sent, given special authority, authority over uh, demons to cast them out, authority over sicknesses to heal those uh, who were ailing, those who were lame, those who were blind those who are mute, to go out and, and preach the nearness of the kingdom of God within this context of a message of repentance. And John may have held this distinction as the last living apostle for quite some time. If we accept the death of Peter, uh, a later apostle, Paul, in the mid-60s A.D., that's some 30 years maybe before these letters are written. If we look to the late 80s, mid-90s as those parameter dates for when those letters from John might have been written. His brother James was put to death by Herod probably around 44 A.D. And just imagine, it's possibly been 50 years since his brother was martyred for the cause of Christ. And so John has seen a lot in his lifetime in the expanse of the church in the, the spread of the kingdom of God. He knows that he's got to be nearing the, the end of his life, and yet he has a, a critical message for the people of God. And there is no way that we can dissect uh, the entire book. We'll focus on the first 13 verses of chapter 5 as kind of a microcosm for many of the concepts that are presented in the book. But First John is, is a study in contrasts. Uh, clear distinctions that are drawn between light and darkness, between love and hate. More specifically, between love of God and the love of this world. Uh, the distinction between and the, the delineation between the spirit of Christ and the spirit of the Antichrist. The distinction between those who are children of God and those who are children of the devil. And those distinctions and contrasts will, will be noted throughout the book. But as we get to chapter 5, we get to something that uh, John R.W. Stott identifies as, as three themes that run throughout the book that he calls birthmarks of new life in Christ. Uh, three marks of the new birth. And you know, we know what physical birthmarks are. I mentioned this at, at Broken Arrow a few Sunday nights ago. Uh, one prominent one that I've had over the years has begun to fade, but I used to see it in my school. I didn't pay a lot of attention to the mirror, but when I got my school pictures as, as I was growing up, I always saw this little birthmark right down here. And I've got so, at my age, I've got so many other marks on my face now that it kind of gets lost uh, in this big map of marks. 
but we know what a physical birthmark is. Well, there are spiritual birthmarks as well, uh, specifically that we can find identified in the first few verses of 1 John 5. So read with me verses 1 through 5 here in 1 John 5. And we're going to be looking for the birthmarks of belief and love and obedience. Belief and love and obedience. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe or keep His commandments when we obey Him. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. We look at this, this first birthmark uh, or this first mark of, of the new birth as being belief. That's an underlying faith, trust, confidence, not just in some concept, but in a person, in the person of Jesus Christ and in his identity as the Son of God, faith in the reality of his incarnation, that he truly came in the flesh, and John's going to have to to combat this notion that was already too sadly widely prevalent uh, in the late first century church. Uh, this docetic idea that no matter itself is evil, so God could have never come in the flesh. He only seemed to be human. He only appeared to be. He was a phantom. He was a ghost. He wasn't really flesh and blood. Wasn't really born of a woman as Galatians 4.4 4 says that he was. So this faith in the person of Jesus was also faith in the, the fact and the reality of his incarnation, the fact and reality of his bodily resurrection. The, the Gnostics who eschewed things that were material and things of the flesh would have no use for the resurrection of the body, the resurrection of the flesh. But that is key, that is central to faith in Jesus Christ. So... This belief is rooted in the nature of God. That God is light, as this letter reveals to us. That God is love, as this letter reveals to us. And that in the Father's Son, Jesus Christ, we have an advocate. We have someone to represent us before the Father through whose blood we receive continual cleansing. And I'll just mention a few. We won't have time to turn to all of these. Uh, in just a moment, I will have you turn to 1 John chapter 4, if you want to turn there with me. But uh, just in regard to this birthmark of belief for those who have been truly born again. 1 John 5, 1 that we just read, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. 1 John 4, 2, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. 1 John 2, 22, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. And then the last verse that we read a moment ago, 1 John 5, 5, who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. There's so many aspects of faith 
But one of those aspects of faith is the assent that these things are true. Trust and confidence and assurance that Jesus is exactly who He said He was. And when we accept those things and when we experience the new birth in Jesus Christ, we have to demonstrate love. Without it, John says, you haven't been born again. You may think you have, but without love, you cannot have participated in the new birth. 1 John 4.19, we love because He first loved us. If you want to read with me here from 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, We'll read together down through uh, verse 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And that's where this incentive, this compulsion to love comes from. We are created in His image, and because He is love, we must love. Uh, At Broken Arrow over the last couple of years, we we focused on this idea of being made in the image of God and that that makes demands on us. It it calls for commitment from us to be as He is, to be holy as He is holy, to forgive as we have been forgiven, to be one as God is one in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and also to forgive as as we have been, excuse me, to love as we have been loved. Uh, The love of God compels us to love one another, and we just can't have that both ways. We can't have the attitude, oh, I love God, that's fine, I just can't stand people. You know, I love Jesus, it's just my brothers and sisters in Christ that I can't stand. That's not an option we have. To, To fail to do one is to deny the first. Uh, Verses 19 through 21, same chapter. We love because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this command we have from Him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. I love what Paul does in in the letter to the... Was Romans one of your, your... books this summer. In Romans 12, we're challenged to, to love our enemies, you know, to, to return evil with good and not be overcome with evil, but to overcome it with good. And to, to bless those who persecute us. And if at all possible, be at peace with all people. So love your enemy. In, in chapter 13, Uh, He reminds us, love your neighbor to not just your enemy, but your neighbor. And lest you forget, Romans 14, love your brother. Love your sister. Love those closest to you. Why is it that those who are sometimes closest to us are the ones who get the worst of us? Sadly, I've been guilty of that in the past uh, in my own family. I've, I've repented of that. I've asked God to forgive me for that. Uh, Forgiving to those whom I love the most, just what was left of me. 
and giving them the, the, the worst of me. So it's interesting that in Romans 12, love your enemy. Romans 13, love your neighbor. And in this process, Romans 14, don't forget to love your brother too. And then this third mark of the new birth, obedience. Jesus had said, as recorded in the record of Jesus' life and teaching and ministry and death, burial, and resurrection, is written by this same apostle in the Gospel of John. John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John, uh, 1 John 2, 3, and 4, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says I have come to know him and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. The truth isn't in him. What we saw earlier from 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. John Stott also writes that love for God, it's not that it doesn't have an emotional component. All love does have an emotional component. But Stott writes about our love for God that it's not merely an emotional experience so much as it is a moral commitment. To love God is to make a moral commitment to Him. That, com- that real emotional component is in the relationship, but it so runs so much deeper than that. Loving God is a moral commitment to walk in His light and to no longer walk in the darkness of this world. A moral commitment not to practice sin is a manner of life. Not that we won't continue to sin. 1 John 1 addresses that a couple of times. But we don't continue to walk in darkness. We don't continue to walk in sin. So for me to claim that I love God, that statement in and of itself makes a claim on my life. And the claim on my life is that I'm going to elevate His will and his desires far and above and beyond my own will and my own desires. And he tells us here in 1 John 5, 1 through 5, that that's not burdensome. When you do the things that you do for the people that you love, that's not a burden. It's a blessing. It's a joy. It's a privilege. It's not laborious. It's not grievous, as the King James Version translated. It's not an imposition to obey God as his child. It's not a burden. It's not a drag. Sin is the burden. And the burden's been taken away by by Jesus Christ. Hell is a drag. Not obedience to God. Submitting to the God who redeemed us from sin and liberated us from enslavement to to Satan, that's that's a service of love. That's just sheer joy. And these concepts that we saw of of love, uh, belief, and love and obedience in those first five verses of uh, 1 John 5. Notice how they're also echoed in in very much the same way in 1 John 3, 23, and 24. This is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. The one who keeps His commandments, the one who obeys, abides in Him, and He in Him. We know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. In the verses that follow in 1 John 5, God wants to affirm something to us who share in this new birth. Those of us who believe, and those of us who love, and those of us who obey. He wants us to be certain about eternal life. 
He wants us to be certain about our salvation. He wants us to have confidence in our spiritual life in Christ. And as we sing the song, he wants us to have blessed assurance. And I like to picture these following verses in in terms of a judicial framework, kind of imagining a courtroom and not just a regular courtroom, but a court of appeals where God is, is the judge whose purpose is to affirm a verdict that had already previously been handed down, but it's a verdict that has been appealed. It's a verdict that's been challenged by an adversary, by an opponent, by a litigant. And you can just guess who that adversary is, who challenges God's verdict, verdict, who wants to undermine, undermine what, what God has declared and made known. And I I freely admit that this courtroom motif really doesn't emerge easily and naturally out of the text, so don't strain yourself in looking too hard for it. I've somewhat imposed it simply because it helps me deal with the concepts that follow. Because he talks about witnesses, and he talks about testimony, and he talks about a, a decision that's being affirmed, a verdict that is rendered. So if you come to me after the service and say, Tim, you know, I think you really manufactured that whole courtroom thing. I'll just say, yeah, I somewhat did. But it helps me deal with with the concepts here. And maybe it will help you as well. An appeal is made to testimony in these verses that follow, uh, especially testimony from three witnesses, the spirit and the water and the blood. This is verses 6 through 8 of 1 John 5 carrying on from where we stopped uh, after verse 5 a moment ago. This is the one, speaking of this Jesus in whom we believe, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. It's like testimony is being offered in this court of appeals about Jesus and witnesses are being called. The witness of the spirit, the witness of the water, and the witness of the blood. Now, if if you're reading from the King James Version tonight, in verse 7, you've got some, some more material. And at first blush... It sounds like, you know, beyond the the spirit and the water and the blood that are called to testify here, it appears at first blush like we've got this incredible, succinct statement about the triune nature of God, you know, explaining how Father and Son and Spirit exist in divine unity. If if you have the King James Version, the rest of 1 John 5, 7 reads, There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Wow, if you've ever been looking for a concise statement about the triune nature of God, there it is. But you may say, my translation doesn't have that in there. If you have a translation that was produced in the 20th century or the 21st century, you don't. And there's just an interesting story about how that verse got into the King James Version, going back to a a Dutch priest, scholar, theologian named Erasmus. Um, He took a lot of heat when he produced... a, a. a Greek New Testament in the early 1500s that lacked that language in that verse because it had been in a Latin translation for centuries. Uh, He took heat when it wasn't in his second edition of the Greek New Testament, using the best manuscripts that he could find. And he took enough heat that he said, 
If anybody can find it in a single manuscript, I'll include it in my third edition. Somebody found a 14th century manuscript. You know, with those words, that he was a man of his word. He included it in his third edition. And when scripture being, started being translated into English, what did they use but Erasmus's third edition? It would be nice if we had such a succinct statement about the Trinitarian nature of God, but it's simply not supported by the text. So what we're left with is not three witnesses in heaven and three on earth, just these three witnesses of spirit, water, and, and blood. Think about the testimony of the Spirit in regard to Jesus, uh, especially as connected with the next witness, water. You, you remember the scene of Jesus' baptism, approaching his relative in the flesh, John, John protesting and saying, I'm the one that needs to be baptized by you. I'm not worthy to untie your sandals, but if this is what you ask, I will comply. Jesus says, let's do that to fulfill all righteousness whatever is entailed in that, uh, this needs to be done. Jesus is immersed in water. He is raised up out of the water, not submitting to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There was nothing to repent of. Uh, there was no sin to, to be taken away in Jesus. But the, the Spirit descends in bodily form upon him, this sign from heaven that accompanies the voice from heaven. The voice of the Father who says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The entire ministry of the Spirit is going to be to testify about Jesus, to point to Him. The most intensive instruction that Jesus ever shares about the work of the Spirit who was to come uh, for the benefit of God's people is in John 14, 15, and 16. And John, 4, uh, John 15, 26, Jesus says about the Spirit, He will testify about me. That's going to sum up the Spirit's work. Spirit's going to come and He's going to, to point to me. John 16, 14, He will glorify me. The Spirit stands as a witness. The Spirit stands in testimony about Jesus and who He is. And then there's the testimony about the water. Something, maybe it's since there is a concern in 1 John about the fact that Jesus truly came in the flesh. Maybe there's a reference to the water associated with, with physical birth. More so, I think, the water of his baptism. Again, where the Spirit bears testimony and the Father bears testimony. One of two definitive occasions where the Father audibly testifies about who his Son is. The other being the transfiguration of which this same writer, John, was a witness and then the testimony of, of the blood, the blood of the covenant, the blood of the cross. And coming to mind then is, is that scene of Jesus' crucifixion and His atoning sacrifice, uh, the blood of the covenant that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins, the blood that flowed from His back as He was so brutally scourged, the blood that flowed from His face as He was beaten with fists, the blood from His scalp and His forehead, as the crown of thorns was pressed down hard onto his scalp, the blood that ran from his hands and his feet as he was nailed to the cross, the blood that flowed from his side with water uh, when his side was pierced with the tip of a spear, precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. In these verses that follow, uh, it's acknowledged that we accept uh, verse 9, 1 John 5, if we receive the testimony of men, 
the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. The law required, the law of Moses required, that if a serious charge were brought against a person, specifically a charge that might result in their death as punishment, it couldn't be on the basis of a single witness. Only on the basis of two or three witnesses. And those witnesses had to be able to come forward. And in some capital cases, they had to be willing to cast the first stones as execution was being carried out. So we've been familiar for a long time with the acceptance of two or three human witnesses. Jesus echoed that in Matthew chapter 18. If, if Mike and I have a problem, I go and I talk to, to Mike about it. And best case scenario, we resolve that ourselves. If we don't, Jesus says, you follow God's law and you take two or three witnesses with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So we're familiar with this idea of accepting the testimony of two or three people. He says, how much more should we accept the testimony of the Spirit and the testimony of the water and the testimony of of the blood. We either accept God's testimony or we call him a liar. Verse 10, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son through the Spirit, through the water, through the blood. What is that testimony? According to verses 11 and 12 of 1 John 5, the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son, and that's what we sing in Blessed Assurance, isn't it? Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. I, I possess Him and He possesses me. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He says, accept the testimony. It's been affirmed in this court of appeals. We can know it. We can be confident in it. We can be blessedly assured of it. The witnesses have been called. The testimony has been given. It's been entered into the record and the verdict has been affirmed. We have eternal life. And if I were to ask you tonight, are you saved? And that's a serious question. Are you saved? Are you born of God? Do you possess eternal life? Are you going to heaven? I'm fairly confident in how most of you would answer. That's why you're in a building like this at 7 o'clock on a Wednesday night. And, and I know a lot of you would enthusiastically give positive responses. I am saved. I am born of God. I possess eternal life. I'm going to heaven. But 30 plus years of experience in ministry has taught me that many people who should be able to respond to those questions with an enthusiastic and an emphatic yes, will instead offer a tentative, qualified answer of, well, I hope so. And, and Mike, you mouthed it with me right, right as I was saying it. Well, I hope so, or I think so, or I'm trying to, or I hope in the last day that God's grace will be 
great enough to cover my sin and to bring salvation to me. And if you're among those sincere believers, and I believe those answers are sincere, just misguided. If you're among those sincere believers who constantly live with a question mark over your soul, there's a few follow-up questions um, I'd like to ask you. And the first of those is, how did you feel when you experienced the new birth? And some of you may have experienced that new birth right here. I'm confident that some of you did. How did you feel when you came up out of the water? What did you know in that moment of time? Did you believe that you were forgiven at that moment? Did you believe that you were saved, that you had eternal life, that your robes had been washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb? If somebody had asked you right then, are you going to heaven, you would have said yes. (laughs) I'm going there. There's no doubt in my mind I'm going to heaven. It's like they used to ask, you know, after uh, Super Bowl victories, they would ask the the winning quarterback, you know, where are you going to go? I'm going to Disneyland. And they knew that. You know, there was going to be a parade. There were going to be the Grand Marshal. They were going to Disneyland. When we are washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, when we receive His indwelling Spirit, we can answer confidently, I'm going to heaven. I can't imagine that our answers would be anything other than yes, because at that moment we believed the testimony of God and the witness of the Spirit and the water and the blood, being born of the water and the Spirit, cleansed by the blood of Christ and indwelled by His Spirit. So what happened between then and now? What caused us to go from knowing so to hoping so or only thinking so? Can't answer for you, but I can answer for for me. And it was the morning after I was baptized into Christ. I was baptized into Christ on a Sunday night in probably late January, early February 1973, shortly before my family uh, went to Liberia, West Africa as, as missionaries. That's what my dad wanted to do, so that's where we were we were going. We were staying temporarily with my grandparents in Tennessee and waiting for our visas to be approved and going to the rural school where my dad had gone many, many years earlier. There was a young lady that, that I rode the school bus with, and um, she knew that I had been baptized the night before. It was a long bus ride, you know, it It was still dark when the school bus picked us up, you know. And uh, on that long ride, I said something on the way to school that I probably shouldn't have said. I don't even remember what it was. But I just remember her saying in response to what I said, well, it's obvious that last night didn't do you a bit of good. And suddenly, you know, the, the joy of that was replaced with serious amounts of this. Because her comment crushed me and shamed me and embarrassed me and stunned me and stung me. And this many years later, I can still remember the tone of her voice when she said it. I can remember, I can see the expression on her face. And it was an expression of contempt and condemnation that said, you're not really any different. You're not really saved. You're just as big a sinner as you were on Saturday. And so I began to question Was she right? Was I really any different? Had anything changed? Had my sins really been washed away? Was I really a Christian? Was God mad at me now? Was I still going to heaven? And within 12 hours of my baptism, I wasn't sure. I didn't know anymore. 
and doubt and anxiety replaced the joy and the excitement that I, I had just experienced. And I have to believe that was from our accuser. That was from our adversary who raises objections, who challenges the verdict, who appeals the decision and says, Tim, God couldn't really forgive you. God really couldn't love you that much. I know that sin takes place in the interim, but thankfully John dealt with that one up front. End of 1 John 1, into beginning of 1 John 2. If we walk in the light, see himself as in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I did hit that button. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. The sacrifice that saved us from sin then is the same one that saves us from sin now. And the blood that washed us clean in there is the same blood that covers us out here. And for those of you who may be saying, I just don't feel I'm good enough, just accept you're not. You never were. You aren't now. You never will be. And that's what grace is all about and forgiveness is all about. He doesn't ask us to be flawless till death, just faithful until death. And we know what that means. Bell rang. We're done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your son. We're grateful, Father, that that even though separated from you by our own choices, our own decisions, our own will, and our own sin, that you have reached out to us through the gift of your son and offered us a salvation that, that we have nothing to offer for other than our belief and our assurance that your son is who he said he was and our love for you in response and our submission to your will. Father, we thank you for the new birth in Jesus Christ. We thank you that that we have been born of of water and the spirit, that, that we have become spiritual babes in your sight. And continue to bless us, Father, as we grow and mature and develop. And may we always carry those birthmarks with us, that we continue to believe and trust in you, that we love others and love you in in response to your love for us, and that we submit to your will, not as a burden, but as a blessing and as a joy. Father, continue to bless your people here. I ask these blessings of you in Jesus' name. Amen.